It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In case you missed it, the grassy courts of Wimbledon are open once again for the annual championship, the oldest tennis tournament in the world and definitely the most famous. Seven-time Wimbledon champion Serena Williams is back in action, slaying in the singles and joining sister Venus in the doubles. And Roger Federer is looking for his ninth win. And that's about as much as I know about what's going on in the world of tennis. And because I remember very little of the tennis I learned to play, half-heartedly as a child, I've brought in an expert to clue us in to the game. Elizabeth Wilson, tennis fan, cultural historian, and most importantly, Brit. Her book, Love Game, is a history of tennis from Victorian pastime to global phenomenon. She's joining us from London, home of the All England Tennis and Croquet Club, which hosts Wimbledon every year. Thanks so much for joining us from across the pond, Elizabeth. Not at all. Thanks for inviting me. Tennis is usually thought of as this fierce technical game, but you make the case that tennis was originally this languid, erotic pastime in the Victorian era. So how did you come to this conclusion? Well, I think what started me off or um, certainly helped me along the way was about four or five years ago, there was an exhibition in England of um, tennis-related art. And there was a whole period from the late 19th century up until about the 1940s when tennis featured quite heavily in painting, photography, drawing and so on. And it was always presented in these images as just what you said as being a kind of garden party sort of affair with men and women flirting, you know, and, um, you know, that might be a portrait of a a man and a girl flirting and the chaperone is sitting in the background looking rather annoyed. And there's much less about the tennis than there is about the cooling drinks and the strawberries and, um, well, the flirtation, really. So um, Victorian lawn tennis on grass was really the second life of tennis because it had had this life in the Renaissance when it was a different kind of game. It was similar but very different. Um, And then it was also seen as refined and the sort of game where young men would learn good manners and more like um, a pageant or something like that. 
so it was always seen as rather different from sports such as football, uh, you know, which were very much played in the streets. They were played by peasants, working class people and so on. Um, and so from right back that very early age, tennis was seen as this rather different kind of game. I and mean, then the downside of it being seen as a fun thing or a slightly naughty kind of thing was that it wasn't seen as a very manly game. And of course, one reason for that was because women actually played alongside men, which, if you think about it, is very unusual in sport. You know, there's men's golf and women's golf, but for example, but they don't play together. And so that in itself, the presence of women, made it seem very unmanly to the typical Victorian sort of muscular Christian, if you, you know, the sort of idea of sport as a kind of adjunct to ruling the empire, really. So from the beginning, it had this slightly deviant, dissolute, sort of decadent feel about it. Right. And we see that, too, in the way that it, over the years, has been home to some really interesting questions of gender, thinking about costumes, for instance, what people wear, how they behave. Well, certainly. Well, let's talk about today for a minute. I mean, one interesting thing about tennis in the television age is that spectators get a really close view on the screen of the player, male or female. So you see every bead of sweat, you see the earrings, the nail varnish, you see everything. And I think this in itself makes it a kind of erotic spectacle so that television has really sort of um, pumped it up in a way. And, of course, today, women particularly wear very, very brief costumes, much more than they do in golf, for example, or football. So it's almost on a par with beach volleyball or something that there is undoubtedly for some spectators um, something a little voyeuristic maybe about the sight of these young women uh, you know, scantily clad, as people used to say. And on the one hand, that can be very erotic, but um, the costume, especially for the top players, the top women players, you know, Serena Williams, uh, Maria Sharapova in the past, they take immense care to look as glamorous as they possibly can. You know, perhaps glamorous is a slightly better word than simply erotic. And of course, the men also are the subject of the gaze as well. And um, I think less successfully, you know, in a way, their tops and their shorts also, you know, display the the kind of heroic male body. So what exactly made tennis able to be so inclusive at the beginning? And then when did it start separating out? Well, I think it was because it started off as a kind of party game. It was really meant to replace croquet, which was a game that people played at, you know, garden parties or house parties in the country. And it was meant to be a social pastime where men and women did play together. So tennis developed out of that. But then I think some uh, male players particularly thought that it had much greater potential to be a really important sport, you know, a proper sport, and began to see all its possibilities. And there were various attempts to exclude women for a time. Women's doubles were played away from the main courts and so on. But very rapidly, Wimbledon and other tournaments became 
tremendous social occasions as well as just sporting events. So tennis went beyond the merely sporting to become something like the races, going to Ascot in Britain, you know, a prestigious horse racing event. Um, And so then again, it becomes attached or it comes associated with uh, upper and upper middle class ways of life, leisure, display of wealth and so on. So it becomes a kind of parade, you know. So even today, I I don't know if you've ever been to Wimbledon, but even today, Wimbledon particularly um, is a kind of social occasion. And the big matches, you know, royalty come and all sorts of uh, well-known figures, sports personalities and film stars and so on turning up. And also, I think that if you think about a tennis tournament, it's not like a football match. You know, you go to the match and then you come home again. But going to a tennis tournament is a day's outing. You know, you go all day, you eat, you drink, you wander about, you see several matches. It's a social occasion um, as well as just a game of something. So in all sorts of ways, it's a kind of rich kind of experience, really, I think. One of the interesting things about your book, too, though, is the way you talk about how the fact that it was such a lofty, playful diversion sort of gets at some of the social issues that it brings out, like its exclusion of anybody who wasn't white, for instance, or um, the snobbery in it, and even, you know, the way that women's bodies were policed. I think that I don't think tennis was any worse in relation to racism than other sports. I think in a way you could say it was worse in class terms because all the old tournaments when they were run by amateurs before tennis was opened up to everyone uh, it was all mixed up with belonging to a socially prestigious tennis club you know the club itself might be difficult to get into unless you had the right friends or came from the right family so there was an awful lot of class prejudice and class distinction in tennis I think perhaps more than in other sports and that sort of filtered over into a demeaning attitude to women which, of course, was noticeable in tennis because women didn't participate in the same way in other sports. So the really bad way in which um, players like Billie Jean King, for example, were treated sometimes, you know, told their clothes weren't fit to be seen on the court and snubbed by people. And she really had to fight with all the old amateur uh, people in charge of the game to really get women's tennis taken seriously at all. And in some ways, it still isn't, you know, but that's another story in a way. So I think tennis has always been uh, associated with or even tainted with class prejudice and snobbery. I think its dreadful attitude in some ways to race isn't so different from other sports. But there was, of course, in the United States, there was a completely separate black tennis players association until after the Second War, you know, which is pretty shocking, really, sort of complete apartheid in tennis. But of course, you still, there are other reasons why there are still few black players, perhaps particularly men in tennis, partly because basketball and baseball in the States um, offer better rewards and perhaps it's easier for sportsmen to sort of acclimatize. Perhaps it's a more friendly environment in a way. I think that's true, especially if you think about how easy it is to start a pickup basketball game, for instance. All you really need is a hoop and a ball and a couple other people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, that's a very good point because obviously for tennis you need rackets, you need a place to play, uh, which is usually has to be something associated with a club um, or there is college tennis in the States. But um, you have to go through so many hoops to sort of get to the starting point, really. Right. And someone has to explain the rules to you, which are pretty complicated. Well, yes, that's also very true. Yes. One last question for you, sort of uh, touching on what you brought up with Billie Jean King. There's a bit in your book where you talk about how tennis sort of attracts outsiders, people who might not otherwise fit into other sports, but who could or who are attracted to tennis for whatever reason. What do you think it is about tennis that holds our fascination and draws people to it? Well, I think it is, you know, it is a very aesthetic game. That's one thing. Maybe it attracts people who are sort of more of a vaguely artistic bent. Um, There is this German player, Dustin Brown, who is a raster. He has huge, long raster locks. And he's just a free spirit, you know. So he lived for a long time in a caravan and he just drove this caravan around Europe and later further afield, just playing tennis when he wanted to. And he's so good that he gets into tournaments and he plays when he wants to and he plays his own game. He plays a completely different game from most players today. Um, And, you know, tennis can be doing with an individual like that because it's a very individualist game. I mean, football, cricket, there has to be a team. You have to conform to the team, don't you? Even if people weren't outstandingly odd or glamorous or eccentric before they got into tennis, the very way in which tennis operates will make them seem more original and more special in a way because it is so very heavily focused on these individual personalities, I think. And speaking of, who will you be rooting for at Wimbledon? Oh, well, I always root for Federer, actually. (laughs) There's still a week left till the tournament wraps up on July 15th, so hopefully you feel armed with some esoteric knowledge of the game should you find yourself at a Wimbledon-watching garden party. There's more about Elizabeth Wilson's book, Love Game, in our show notes, along with links to the BBC's robust coverage of the tournament and some criticism about Wimbledon referring to Serena Williams as Mrs., despite the fact that she did not take her husband's name. Check it out. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.